Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. What are the seven most controversial and often confusing archaeological discoveries about Jesus of Nazareth? Well, welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. I'm really excited to welcome to the podcast today um, Dr. Titus Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is a professional field archaeologist currently directing archaeological projects in Bible lands while researching, writing, and teaching in the field of biblical archaeology. In addition to being an adjunct professor at Biola University and a research fellow at Discovery Institute, he has been a consultant, writer, and guide for history in archaeological documentaries and curricula. He's also researched and photographed the known archaeological sites and artifacts connected with the life of Jesus. He's the author of two excellent books, one on unearthing the Bible and the other one on excavating the evidence for Jesus. So, Dr. Kennedy, it is great to have you on the podcast today. Hey, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Well, hey, we're going to dive right in and we're going to count down the seven often controversial and confusing um, archaeological discoveries about the life of Jesus. And we'll kind of unpack some of your story and different things as we go, but let's dive right in. What would you put at number seven as we dive into this topic? Well, let's begin with one that's probably very well known and might be the most controversial, and that is the James Ossuary. So an ossuary is a bone box, and these were made in the first century BC, first century AD in Judea and Galilee. And some of them were inscribed with the name of the deceased and oftentimes connections that they had, family or the place that they were from or their profession. So there was a ossuary that came on the antiquities market because it had been looted illegally from a tomb in Jerusalem. And this had a very, very interesting inscription on it in Aramaic. It said, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And when this was first noticed by a scholar who studies ancient inscriptions, an epigrapher, he immediately knew that this could be something very important. It looked extremely unique. Uh, for one thing, what would be noticed is that, as I said, some of them had inscriptions on them. So not all of them. The fact that it has an inscription makes it a little bit more important and noteworthy. Then we have not only the name of the deceased and the name of his father, which that formula is fairly typical, but the name of the brother is added on to afterwards. And that tells us that this brother was probably important because of all the ossuary inscriptions that have ever been found so far, there's only one other one that mentions the brother, and that one doesn't mention the father. So this is really trying to point us to someone specific. Now, when this was shown to the world, and it went on display and went on a, a brief exhibition tour. It got a lot of press, and then there was a group from the Israel Antiquities Authority that decided to investigate this more thoroughly, and they claimed that it was uh, partially a forgery, at least. So geologists had examined this, this stone box itself, and they said that it was consistent with an ancient ossuary 
from the area of Jerusalem, from a tomb in Jerusalem. So that that seemed to be fine. The ossuary itself was uh, legitimate. So it was the inscription that was attacked. And specifically, this came to, the theory came to be that the brother of Jesus part was not legitimate, like it had been added on later. And so a lot of scholars ended up jumping into this and, and looking at it. It was actually involved in a larger antiquities trial about forgeries. And after about 10 years, uh, it was the person, the defendant was actually uh, not, not convicted of forgery on this particular artifact. And it was given back and uh, so it, at the very least, they couldn't demonstrate that there is forgery in the trial. Well, a lot of scholars looked at this and they said, look, the, the script is exactly the same throughout. It, it looks like it was made with the same tool at the same time. And then they examined what's called the patina. So this is an ancient residue that would form when the ossuary was sitting in a tomb for centuries. And they found that there was patina even in the part of the inscription that says, brother of Jesus. So that was not added on later. It's all part of the same inscription from pre-70 AD Jerusalem. And a, a statistical study was, was then done based on the names used, the population of Jerusalem in the first century, and, and the frequency of names. And it determined that there would be less than two people in Jerusalem in the first century with this specific combination of names. So who, who do we know from history? Well, Josephus even talks about James as the brother of Jesus. And of course, the New Testament does too. That's the only relationship we know of. And again, this brother had to be important, very important. So it seems like this Oshawa inscription is actually recording Jesus, the brother of James, and their father, Joseph, which you know, is pretty incredible. But again, it was shrouded in a lot of controversy. And many people, I think, just decided to throw it out rather than really look into it or, or see where the evidence eventually led. That's crazy. That's so exciting because you see, I think when these claims come out about Jesus or things, I think there's just all this kind of news and oh, it can, that can't, it can't be it, right? Or that can't be um, actually supporting Jesus. And yet what you just walked through kind of helps people see no, you know, there's there's evidence there um, around that support this, and that's that's pretty exciting. So, all right, so that's number seven. All right, the ossuary, um, James, brother of Jesus. Um, so, what what would be number six? For number six, we can look at one that isn't maybe quite as controversial, but it's it's confusing for a lot of people, and that is the Praetorium where the trial of Jesus in front of Pilate was held. Now, if you go to Jerusalem and you go on a tour, most of the tours are going to take you to what we might call the traditional spot of the, the trial before Pilate at the Praetorium. Uh, maybe you've been there. And this is, this is again, generally where the tourists are going to go. Uh, I call it traditional, maybe in quotes, because it's the traditional tourist spot, but it's not traditional in terms of this is not where the ancient Christians placed it. It's not where the, the Byzantines placed it. No church was erected there. Well, when people go to this, this spot, which is near the Antonia Fortress, right by the Temple Mount, they're often shown the stone pavement that's there. And they, they link this to what John talks about 
in the trial of Jesus narrative in John 18 and the stone pavement. But the first problem is that the stone pavement they're looking at is from the second century, not the first century. It's from when Emperor Hadrian rebuilt Jerusalem. Now, if we go to the ancient sources, such as Philo of Alexandria and Josephus, we can see where the, the Praetorium was located according to their accounts in the first century. And that is in the former palace of Herod the Great, which was on the western side of the city. And part of that has been excavated. In fact, uh, part of the Praetorium was excavated in the 70s. It's just that not much has been published about it, and so very few people know about it. But if you go up there today, you can actually see some remnants of the Praetorium that would have been present and used by Pilate when Jesus was there. Uh, specifically, there's a gate with some stairs leading up. There's the area of the Bema and the, the Gabbatha, the raised place. And on that, you have stone pavement. And this is stone pavement from that first century governor's mansion or praetorium because the city was destroyed in 70 AD and that part was not rebuilt, unlike what the tourists are often shown. So it's a really, really cool thing that not a lot of people go and look at. And yet it's a very important part of the trial of Jesus narrative. Yeah. And so yet again, it's another piece of archaeological evidence that supports uh, what we see in the gospel accounts and also um, the historical record around um, the, the life and the fate of Jesus of Nazareth. Right. So that one, as I said, it, it might not be so controversial, depends on which tour guide you talk to, but it is something that is confusing, and but hopefully over time it will get cleared up as more information comes out about this and more publications. That's awesome. Well, well my guest today, in case you're uh, just wondering about where to get more information on this, is Dr. Titus Kennedy. He's the author of the book Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, and we're unpacking um, and counting down from seven of the most controversial and con often confusing discoveries related to the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So we've we've done seven and six. So what is number five? Number five, let's do a fun one for this. And this is a, an inscription about trumpeting. So the, the place of trumpeting inscription. And it was discovered at the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. And it seems like it fell down from up there on the Temple Mount, probably on a tower. Now, why I say this might be a little bit controversial is because everyone who's read the, the gospel accounts, they know about the denial that Peter does and how Jesus talks about a rooster crowing three times, right? And so everybody's thinking about a rooster. But what they might not be aware of is that the Greek word that's used there for rooster, elector, was also used metaphorically of the sound of a trumpet. And when we go back to ancient sources from around the first century and, and slightly later ones that are talking about that time period, we find out that the trumpet was used to signal the beginning of the Sabbath. It's one of the, one of the things it was used for, kind of like uh, clocks in later periods or bell towers. And so this seems to be actually referring to the trumpet sounding to tell everybody that it's the beginning of the Sabbath it, rather than a rooster, which seems like 
according to Mosaic law and, and Jewish custom, probably wouldn't have been allowed to be inside the, the city walls and near the, the priestly house's priestly quarter. So this archaeological discovery shows us that, yeah, indeed, there was this place of trumpeting right there on the southwestern corner of the Temple Mount in the first century. And we've got sources like Josephus that talk about this practice. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. And real quick, for those who may not be familiar, who is Josephus really quickly? Just give a quick high level summary. Uh, Josephus was born in Judea and he actually initially fought against the Romans in that first revolt. Uh, but then he surrendered and he was eventually adopted by the family of the emperor, the Vespasians, and he became an official historian for the Roman emperors. And he completed this huge work called the Antiquities of the Jews in about 93 AD. Uh, he had firsthand knowledge of many things in first century Judea, but he also wrote some other works too. And he's an incredible source for us for uh, ancient Israel, especially Judea in the first century. Yeah, right. And, and one of the reasons, right, is he's, is he's writing for outsiders who wouldn't have known the lands. And so he's incredibly detailed at times where it's just, you know, which is gives us a lot of things to go on and things like that. So, um, but I love that you unpack some of that context. because I think this is key for those uh, who are listening as students of the Bible. Sometimes we'll read something in the text and not have the full context of even the language or the literature or maybe even where the city walls would have been and why, okay, would there have been a rooster there? Well, actually, was it a trumpet? You know, so I mean, context helps us better understand what's going on. And that's a really important um, discovery that we found about the place of trumpeting coming in at number five on our list, counting down from seven uh, on controversial, often confusing kind of things that that pertain to the life and death and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. All right. So that's, that's number five. So what's, what's number four on your list? Uh, number four, let's do a really new one. So this is a cup, uh, a ceramic cup that was recently discovered in the ancient Harbor of Alexandria. And this cup is, it's a first century piece of pottery from, from the late first century, let's say the second half of the first century after 50 AD. And it has this inscription in Greek on it. And, and it's a dedication to Christ the magician. So these people in Egypt, they were aware of Christ, of Jesus Christ. And they were aware of the stories of the miracles that he was performing. But magic was a huge thing in ancient Egypt. And so that's their worldview. They're looking at him as someone who's performing magic or who is a magician, not as God who is performing miracles. But they think that they can harness his power through magical incantations. And so they make this cup that has his, his name on it and the title that they've ascribed to him, probably thinking that they can perform some magic through his power. And this is something that we see later on in other documents from Egypt, like the, there are magical papyri from Egypt that have been discovered. And, and one really interesting thing found in there connected to Jesus says that one of the ways that you can go about casting out demons is by invoking Jesus, God of the Hebrews. And so they were aware of things that Jesus had been doing. They're just 
looking at it from a different worldview. And so thinking of him sort of as a, you know, a magician and conjurer. No, that that's, that's amazing. Cause it also shows you the reach uh, and the influence of Jesus of Nazareth when you when you find these kinds of things. And a lot of people probably never even knew that existed. That, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it tells you about his existence and it tells you about one aspect of his life and that people over in Egypt, even later in the first century, already knew about that, you know, before the Gospels were circulating. Yeah, that that's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. All right, so we are we've gone from seven through four, and now we are down to number three. What is number three on your list of controversial, maybe often confusing, less known kind of discoveries around the life ministry of Jesus of Nazareth? For this one, uh, let's look at one that probably a lot of people are actually aware of, uh, but they may not have dove into the details, and that is Quirinius and the census of Augustus. So in Luke chapter 2, at the beginning, we have him talk about how when Augustus was emperor, he issued orders for the census of the whole Roman Empire. And then we read that Quirinius was a ruler of Syria, who was the one administering it in in that region, including the region of Judea. And Mary goes down with Joseph to Bethlehem, all right? So this one, I would say, is is both controversial and confusing in that the concept that there's actually archaeological evidence for this census is controversial for many people, scholars even, who seem to be unaware of certain things or they they just refuse to acknowledge uh, what these ancient inscriptions and texts are saying. Uh, So first of all, we have accounts from Augustus himself, basically his autobiography, that talks about him issuing three empire-wide censuses during his time as emperor. And one of those he issued starting in 8 BC. Okay, that's that's the one that's closest to when we would put the birth of Jesus. So Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. We know that he is around still for a little while. Uh, when Jesus is born. So, you know, it's probably a couple of years or so before that. So Augustus issues this empire-wide census. So that that does exist. That concept does exist. And then uh, then secondarily, we have Quirinius. Well, what about him? I mean, Quirinius was a well-known Roman politician and general, and he, he was actually commanding legions around the area of Syria at that time. We can't put him exactly in in a location on an exact date, but he was there and he had this power as a legate. Okay, so he's like a a military commander, military ruler, general, rather than a a civil governor. But in Roman protocol, it was the military who actually administered the censuses on the local level. So it makes sense that he would be connected to that. And there is an inscription that was found in Beirut, which was part of Roman Syria province, one of the officers of Quirinius talks about a census in the time of Augustus, and he's under the command of the legate Quirinius. So we've got a lot of things that come together that make sense. And then there are there's a lot of Roman papyri from Egypt that actually talks about how people were, in fact, told to go back to their, their homes, their registered homes, their ancestral homes, for these censuses, 
And Joseph was connected to Bethlehem. He may have been born there. He may have been grown up there and moved to Nazareth. His family was from there. And so that seems to be why they actually go down to Bethlehem. No, that's pretty amazing because if you spend any time, one of the biggest uh, challenges that people often throw at the reliability of Scripture, especially um, the early part of the Gospels, is this Quirinius objection to the census. It didn't happen this way. But in light of what you just shared, why do you think maybe the scholarship or the critical scholars are so slow to kind of accept some of this evidence? Because a lot of people don't know this other literary evidence exists as well as these other things you mentioned. Why? Why do you why the resistance there, do you think? I think the first thing is uh, an issue of momentum. So this has been repeated for so long in so many books and articles that it's just sort of become the accepted thing. And a lot of people probably don't even think about it anymore. It's just like that's already been established. Luke, Luke made an error. You know, Quirinius was not around syria at that time or or wouldn't have been involved in a census or there was no worldwide you know global roman empire census uh they often look at josephus and say oh josephus talks about Quirinius, but it's later well yes he does but that what Quirinius is doing there is not at all like what luke is describing that is a tax assessment in the local area of judea because archelaus has been deposed and he's going in and checking out the financials. So it's a totally different situation. And people may just be unaware of some of these other inscriptions and not can't be bothered to fix what was mistakenly told in the past. Yeah, and so the bottom line, especially for someone who may be new to some of this, is there is nothing in the archaeological or literary record that contradicts what Luke is talking about there. But in fact we see a lot of context that validates what he is talking about there. Would that be a fair way to put it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's really exciting. Cause that's a, you know, because it's really important, especially when you think about scripture to make sure that when it, when it names the people and the places and the localities and, and, and all the different political leaders, it gets those details right over and over and over again, whether it's Luke Acts or other places in the gospels. And so um, these things can be trusted because they get the details right. And so um, this is just a, a fraction of this. And again, my guest today is Dr. Titus Kennedy. We're kind of talking through some different controversial and maybe often overlooked or a little understood uh, archaeological discoveries about Jesus. But we've got a whole book uh, that he's written called Excavating the Evidence for Jesus um, that, that goes into all sorts of detail on that. So that's my conversation. But we're counting these down. We're down to number two. So what is... Uh, number two, when it comes to the controversial or least or little known um, or often confusing um, discoveries about Jesus of Nazareth. So the, the next one we'll do is called the Nazareth inscription. So this has been gaining some more notoriety recently, but even a few years ago, it seemed like almost nobody was aware of this and how it might connect to Jesus and the Gospels. But in my opinion, this is a really important inscription. So the Nazareth inscription, it's called that just because it it turned up in Nazareth. Uh, it was not found in a, a normal archaeological excavation, but it turned up in Nazareth and it was a Greek inscription. In fact, it was uh, what we might call a rescript, an imperial rescript. So the emperor would send a letter 
somewhere. And then this letter would be inscribed onto stone and put in a public place so that all the people could see what this or this order of the emperor was. And on this particular inscription, which seems to be from the time of, of Claudius, Emperor Claudius, it talks about a new and extreme penalty for something, something which normally would just be a civil issue. You might pay a fine. And that is, he gets into the specifics. If somebody goes to a tomb, in fact, he even talks about stone-sealed tombs, not, not just any type of tomb. So think mm. about the tomb of Jesus, what kind of tomb that is, stone-carved with a, a sepulcher-sealing stone. And then it goes and says, if anyone has extracted the body or has moved with, with wicked intent that body to another place, then it says that they will suffer capital punishment. So this suddenly became a huge deal. If somebody goes into a very specific type of tomb in this region of Judea and Galilee, and, and they move the sepulcher ceiling stone, and then they take the body out of the tomb with, he says, wicked intent. So they've got some ulterior motive behind this. And they take that body away and, it, and either destroy it or hide it. So nobody, nobody knows where it is that it's around anymore. And you think, what is, what's going on here? And why such the extreme penalty? Well, if we look into the historical context here, I think it could have a link to the time of Jesus. And in fact, the, the story of his resurrection. You go to Matthew 28, 11 through 15, and it talks about how the Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb go to the religious leaders in Jerusalem and tell them what happened. And they say, hey, here's some money. Now go spread the story that the disciples of Jesus stole his body. That'll be the explanation for why the body of Jesus is gone. And, and if this gets to the governor, you know, we'll make sure that you won't get in trouble. And then it says, and this story is, is spread among the Romans until today. So this seemed to have been the, the known or typical Roman narrative that disciples of Jesus actually stole the body and then said, hey, guys, the body's gone. He resurrected. And then it caused all these problems in the Roman Empire. And the emperor, Claudius, is thinking, well, I need to put a stop to this. You know, first of all, he would have liked to put a stop to Christianity completely. Maybe that would help. But definitely didn't want anything like that ever happening again. And so he institutes this new and extreme law with the death penalty for just taking a corpse out of a tomb. Yeah. And that's pretty remarkable, right? Because that's very specific in terms of, yeah, we're going to, we're going to try to deal with this very particular thing. And oh, by the way, it just happens to corroborate a bunch of the details around the fate of Jesus of Nazareth and what happened to the body and did he rise from the dead and all of that stuff. And so that's a really exciting one to talk about that nobody uh, really knows about. Do you think, are, do you think people are starting to uh, words starting to get out more about that? Or is that still one that's. Yeah, that's yeah, it is. And, and one reason actually is because there was a, a, a negative assessment article about this fairly recently where they did a test on the geology, on the origin of the stone. It's actually marble. And they found that the closest match was from a quarry on the island of Kos, which is just off of the coast of Turkey. 
And so their claim was that, oh, this had nothing to do with Jesus or Judea, Galilee. It had to do with this guy called Nicias of Kos, a, a tyrant. And when the people rebelled, well, didn't really rebel, but when they, after his death, they went and broke his tomb up and just kind of like dragged his body out in front of it and desecrated it. So the problem is that there's no marble in in the area of ancient Israel. So the kingdom of Herod, Judea, he had to import his marble. And one of the main places that he imported his marble from was Kos. In fact, <laughs> there are many inscriptions that have been found on Kos from the Herodians. So this is not at all unexpected. In fact, we might think that's probably where it would come from. And that uh, they just brought the marble in and it was inscribed there in Nazareth where it was found. So, uh, yeah, it, it's consistent, again, with, with the historical and archaeological evidence. And the story of Jesus's resurrection and the Roman reaction to it is much closer to what we see in this e this edict or rescript than what you read about the story of Nicias. No, that's that's really helpful. That's really helpful. And so, you know, so as we're thinking about these different archaeological discoveries, maybe less known, more controversial, maybe all the details haven't fully gotten out there yet. Um, we've been counting down from seven. We have now finally arrived at number one. So what what would you put as the number one uh, most kind of controversial or often confusing overlooked discovery around Jesus of Nazareth? Well, what I've found among Christians is that the tomb of Jesus is often the most confusing and controversial of these issues. Now, among non-Christians, th this is not the case. And, and I will just say up front that, that basically every archaeologist, I've never encountered an archaeologist who thinks that the garden tomb is the tomb of Jesus. So archaeologists are basically in consensus that it is in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, but many people get confused about this for a variety of reasons. Now, first of all, among Protestants, there seems to be this issue with uh, Catholic or Orthodox churches marking locations, and, and they're suspicious of that and think that it's just some kind of you know, dressed up tourist site, you know, or re a religious site type of thing. But they have to go back to when these churches were originally built, which was in the Byzantine period in the fourth century AD after Christianity was legalized and real church buildings could be built. Before that, it was all house churches. And so they purposely built churches on places that were biblically significant, especially those connected to Jesus. And they didn't just go randomly pick any location. They asked the people who lived there, the leaders of the church even, where these specific events happen. And, and what we find is that the Byzantines were extremely accurate in preserving geographic locations, whereas the Crusaders were not at all. So that's a completely different thing. Crusader churches are very often totally the wrong place, but the Byzantine churches aren't. So let's talk about the, the two tombs. Well, first of all, what are the issues with the garden tomb? So the garden tomb disqualifies itself on archaeological grounds because it was not a new tomb carved out in the first century AD. It actually comes from what we call the Iron Age II, 
in the 8th or the 7th century BC. That's when it was first carved out. This is around the time of King Hezekiah. It's also a different type of tomb architecturally, and it is not a, a single chamber tomb like the tomb of Jesus. It's got two chambers, actually. And then it wasn't revered as the tomb of Jesus by the early Christians. It was actually reused as a tomb again in the Byzantine period. So it's not until the 1800s when this sort of uh, allegorical view of Jerusalem and the tomb of Jesus comes into play that this is proposed as the tomb of Jesus and that Golgotha is placed uh, nearby at what is now a bus station with, again, a misunderstanding of Golgotha. You know, it was this guy, he thought it was the face of a skull that he saw on the rock face, but the way that Golgotha is described in the Gospels is a cranium, so it's the rounded hill. All right, so the, the tomb of the tomb and the garden tomb is not the tomb of Jesus. In fact, the people who administer the garden tomb will not tell you, hey, this is definitely the tomb of Jesus according to the archaeological and historical evidence. It, it is useful to see kind of what what would that have been like. But we've got the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So, you know, what what do we have there, first of all? Well, there are tombs from the first century in that area because it was a quarry that was then turned into a garden and a graveyard in about the first century BC. So we've got multiple tombs from the first century around the area of what is now the church. Then you look at the tomb of Jesus specifically, what's there? You know, they, they actually carved away some of the hillside and built a protective edicule around it, but it's a single chamber stone carved tomb and it has a burial bench in it which was actually revealed when National Geographic was doing restorations. So it fits the description of the single chamber tomb with a place for the body to lay. And, and then we look at some of the history associated with that. Well, Eusebius, for example, who lived in the third and fourth century, he talks about the history of this tomb. And he tells us that, yes, the Christians, you know, they, they lived there, they knew where this event happened. And then uh, Hadrian came there in the second century, and he wanted to kind of cover up Christianity or confuse it with Roman paganism. And so he actually built Roman temples and shrines over many places that were associated with Jesus. And one of these places he did was the tomb of Jesus, uh, which also may have been, well, probably was nearby the crucifixion site, but that's not as clear. So the tomb of Jesus, he builds this huge double temple over it to Jupiter and to Venus. So there's a double temple in Rome right by the Colosseum that was to Roma and Venus that it would have been very similar, also built by Hadrian. So he's, he's trying to associate these major Roman gods instead with Jesus. But in so doing, he actually helped preserve the tomb and the memory of that location because when Constantine came along and legalized Christianity. Then they, they went to Jerusalem. He sent his architect and his mother, and they asked the bishop of Jerusalem, you know, where was the tomb of Jesus? Oh, it's underneath this Roman temple because Hadrian was trying to obscure it. So they just removed that and then built some church structures around that. And so we've got a long history of, of Christians knowing where this tomb is. It's always been that one. 
It hasn't been anywhere else. It's it's a single chambered tomb, like the Gospels describe it, with a burial bench from the first century in this other first century graveyard. So it to me, it's a really solid case. But again, people get confused. They think that it was located in the city because the walls of Jerusalem changed in the 16th century AD, but it was actually outside the city in the time of Jesus. And so there's all sorts of, you know, kind of misinformation, confusion going around, but it's a really, really strong archaeological case. No, that that's a really helpful summary. And having having been there, you know, you're in the garden and your and your heart would tell you or the emotions like, yeah, this is what this would feel like. This is but then your head is when you get to the church of the sepulchre, you're like, no, this is where this needs to be. And then especially once you're there, if you get a chance to travel, um, if you're a listener getting a chance to travel, you've obviously been there many times, but to see kind of kind of overlooks from the city to kind of see where some of those boundary lines of the old city walls used to be because it's confusing because you have modern Jerusalem on top of kind of ancient first century and it's hard to know where stuff stops and starts and kind of almost need one of those kind of animation things where things just get peeled away and like oh that's where that is and so your description really helps people uh, kind of uh, have a better picture of what what that would have been um, and why and even the places around this significant moment for the uh, for the burial place of Jesus of Nazareth and why that's so significant. So I love that. That's super helpful. Um, the so that's that's the top seven. Uh, and so one of the things I wanted to do real quickly as well is one of the questions I commonly get is okay. Well, how do we know how old stuff? How do you date things like this? So you're an archaeologist. What are kind of the just kind of pretend that somebody doesn't know much at all about how this discipline works and. Um, what are the top two or three ways you go about the process of figuring out is this how old this is and is this in the right place? So when we're doing an actual excavation, you have layers or strata. And it, the general rule is the, the deeper that you dig, the, the older that this material is. But you can, you can tell where an occupational layer has changed. So you have some relative chronology there, but some of the main things that we use to, to date a particular layer are things like pottery. And why is that? Because there is so much pottery in the ancient world and it was breaking fairly often. And so they had to make more and, and they would just kind of leave it, you know, or throw it in a pit or just put it on the ground or integrate it into something else. So there, there's millions and millions of pottery shirts. But pottery changed over time, kind of like clothing styles do. And so we know from, say, a 100 or even 50 year period what this pottery style is. We can't say that it's from a specific year or even like a specific decade unless it's got some kind of inscription on it. But 50, 100 years. So that that's a major way that we can date things. Uh, radiocarbon dating is used sometimes. But it, there are calibration issues that have to be dealt with. So it depends on what period and region you're looking at. Uh, coins are also very, very helpful. Uh, obviously, coins weren't in use throughout the Old Testament period. So we don't use them for that. But for the New Testament period, yes, uh, you know, the first coins really start coming into use uh, mostly in the 6th century B.C., uh, but why are coins so helpful? Because you get to the time of Jesus 
And these coins have the names and the faces of rulers on them. And, and oftentimes they even have the year of their reign. And so we can date those very, very specifically, even you know, much more so than pottery styles. Uh, other ways that we can look into to dating are various inscriptions. So they may talk about a specific event or a specific, specific ruler or some years of his reigns, you know, similar to coins. Uh, the style of writing it can sometimes be used, but it's not as accurate as some of the other things we're talking about. Uh, scarabs earlier in time uh, with the cartouche of Egyptian pharaohs on them. And we have the king list and we know when that pharaoh reigns. So again, we can you know assign a general period. So there are quite a few different ways that we can go about this. And usually archaeological sites or a layer will have multiple lines of evidence or material that we can, we can use to date it. And so we're, we're generally not relying on just one thing, but it, if we are relying on one thing, then most of the time it's pottery. No, that that's super helpful because um, until people actually kind of see what that looks like in the strata and the things that are kind of buried there and it's like, okay, how does that work? And then you see these coins and it's amazing the detail that's on these coins and uh, which is so exciting um, to think about what what's uh, maybe one of one of the most significant coins that you you might say is um, around the significance of the life and, and ministry of Jesus that that would give somebody an example of something that would be a significant coin. Mm-hmm. Oh man, there's a lot of them, but I'd say one of the most interesting ones to me comes up from the area of Galilee, and that is Herod Antipas the Tetrarch. So. Herod Antipas was the ruler of Galilee for almost the entire life of Jesus, and actually a few years past the time of Jesus. And so he he issued a lot of different coins. There was actually a mint located up there in Galilee. And he put his name and his title on these coins, Herod the Tetrarch. And so that's just as the same way that Luke describes him. Very interesting. Uh, But... Also, he would put icons on these coins. And one of the coins that dates to the the early period of the ministry of Jesus has a reed on it. And and it's a bent reed. Seems to be maybe bent from blowing in the wind if they were trying to, to, to depict that. And Jesus seems to use the imagery on this coin to actually insult Herod Antipas at one point. Like he's a reed shaking in the wind. Basically, he goes with wherever the political winds blow. He he can't stand firm on his own. And then we see that that a little bit later in the ministry of Jesus, that that illustration on the coin, that icon on the coin, is no longer there. It's it's changed to something else. So it's it's <laughs> possible possible link there. Uh, that that Jesus talks about the imagery on a coin, and and maybe Herod even heard that and decided I'm going to change it up a little bit and put put some different pictures on it. <laughs> That's really funny. But again, it's just it speaks to the reality that these are real people, real places, real time with a real history, um, real dirt that can be unearthed, and we can actually see uh, and and go where these these things are and discover this stuff. So exciting. You know, you've studied archaeology. You're an archaeologist. 
how, what impact has that had on you personally? And maybe, maybe your faith as you, um, as you follow Jesus and get to do what you do, um, for a living and as a calling. I'd say there's two main things. Uh, first of all, it's just showing me all this tangible evidence for the gospels and for the Bible as a whole. And, and that, what we're reading there it was real they were real events real places real people real objects Uh, it's not just uh, allegory or you know fables meant to communicate some spiritual ideas and and that it's all on solid footing so it's really uh helpful to know that when we're you know questioning questioning things or you know wondering about why why we believe this way or that way and you know how is this more credible than some other belief system uh but the other way is that it's really it opened up the study of the bible to me in a totally different way i mean it it made it more realistic so much more realistic really when when you go there and see these places and see these objects and, and you can visualize it and visualize it correctly and also you you gain a much better understanding of the historical context so when you are reading through you are looking at it at least from a more correct and ancient context maybe not always exactly right but it it does help us a lot in our interpretation and our understanding of the scriptures to to know at least a bit about what things were like at those specific times in biblical history. No, that that's so encouraging to hear. And and I can echo that um, because I mean, just going and, and being there and seeing these locations. I mean, we get to take our impact 360 uh, students, uh, fellows, alumni um, there each year in, in the three initiative. And we get to go and, and see these places and there's the geography and there's the distances between, and there's the roads and here's the, you know, the tomb and the general location where this happened. And here's that spring and here's that valley. And here's that tell that hill, you know, and it's, and it's very encouraging. And then it unlocks that because as followers of Jesus, we, we want to take his words seriously and, and God's word seriously. And so I think I just completely agree um, with you on that. Um, maybe it, you kind of hinted at this all along because archaeology in some ways, it's a newer discipline, right? It's only been around a couple hundred years. Uh, what might you say just in terms of um, what archaeology can do for us and maybe what it can't do, or maybe kind of that range of, so we don't, um, you, you understand kind of what I'm asking mm-hmm. there in terms of just like, what, what is successful archaeology and what, what can it show us and, and maybe not? What are the limitations of it? Right. Well, archaeologists and archaeology can show us what ancient buildings looked like when different cities and towns and places were occupied. Uh, it can give us evidence that demonstrates the existence of you know, certain people and that various events happened and, and help us to piece together history and, and give us more information about history. But uh, you know, what it can't do is really speak to theological claims or, or I should say spiritual or supernatural claims and archaeology can't can't demonstrate miracles or that Jesus is God. But it can show us that 
the gospels are historically accurate. So there's, there's, yes, there's limitations, of course. Archaeology can do a lot in terms of history. Did these things happen? Did these people and places exist? But it can't verify all of these, all the claims in the Bible. Yeah. And so, and so maybe, and maybe I've, you heard it talked about where we speak in probabilities, like it's highly probable that, but it's pretty rare that you're, well, it's absolutely certain this is the place, right? Where that happened. You know, there's a lot of places you go, Hey, this is the place that happened. Well, maybe <laughs> around here, um, that, that kind of thing. And so, uh, so it can give us great confidence, but it's, it's kind of, we're discovering more and more every day. And, and there's always a lot of controversy around it, which is part of what makes it fun. I mean, everybody's kind of, they all the back and forth and you see the dust settle and things like that, uh, which, which is really exciting. But um, again, my, my guest today is Dr. Titus Kennedy. We're talking about his book, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus. We've counted down the seven most controversial or little understood um, archaeological discoveries around Jesus and a little background on this. But as we head into this kind of, maybe the last thing we can do is we're heading into Christmas season here a little bit and there's always conversation around the birth of Jesus and all these different things, but maybe mention just a few other things that would give people confidence that we've discovered from historical record or archaeology around that surround maybe the the childhood of Jesus or the birth of Jesus, life, ministry, any, any of the ones you want to mention. There's tons of them we can mention from his life and teaching, but um, what would be some of those that you would uh, just encourage people with just in kind of more of a quicker kind of fashion of, of some discoveries there? Well, if we're looking at the the birth of Jesus and the time surrounding the birth of Jesus, uh, we've got a lot of details that have been corroborated by archaeological discoveries. So earlier we talked about Augustus as the emperor of Rome and then him issuing this empire-wide census and then Quirinius and his existence as a Roman politician and, and general in the area of Syria and his involvement in a census. Uh, we've got Herod the Great, who is talked about, especially in Matthew. And we know all about him, uh, not just from ancient historical writings, but from many inscriptions and from buildings all, all over the place. These, these pretty magnificent buildings and palaces that he had constructed. And then uh, we also talked about how papyri from Egypt during the Roman period discussed people going to their their homes, their family homes for the censuses. So that that is consistent. Um, you know, why did Joseph take his family to Egypt? I think archaeology and history can give us a clue about that and that it was it was outside of the jurisdiction of Herod. So it's, it was in a Roman province and yet it was safe to travel to because it was all it was on Roman roads and the currency is the same around the roman empire and there was a community of jews there so you know little details like that uh going back to nazareth in his early childhood well excavations at, at nazareth have found that people did indeed live there in the first century and actually includes jews who were observant of the mosaic law and we know that because of the type of artifacts and tombs that have been found there things like uh cups that were used stone cups that were used for ritual washing connected to the mosaic law or or types of tombs that were typically used by jews so all that kind of stuff is consistent with what we read in the gospels about the the birth and the early childhood of jesus 
That's amazing. And and we haven't even scratched the surface on getting into all the other fun things we could talk about, like the Pool of Siloam or the Pool of Bethesda or any of those kind of things or, you know, um, Pilate and the evidence that he existed and talk about the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas and Annas, the high priest, all these. And that's why people are going to need to buy your book, right? So excavating the evidence for Jesus is a great visual super helpful book um, that you've written and try to put all this in one place around the life of Jesus. Um, but at the end of the day, I hope what people are hearing as they've heard this conversation is that you can trust what you find in the Bible. You, these, this is not myths and fairy tales for grownups. This is real uh, life historical uh, things that you can evaluate um, and most importantly point us to those claims that the Gospels make uh, about Jesus and who he claims to be um, and what he offers um, to us. And so um, just so fun to see how history, um, faith and history are connected when it comes to Christianity. It rises or falls on historical events like the resurrection and things like that. So um, first, thanks for thanks for doing this work that you do and in, in writing this book. Um, but maybe just uh, to end on, is there anything kind of coming up that you see on the horizon in, in archaeology or directions of new areas of discovery or some even just some new new stuff to for people to be looking into as they as they maybe get into this uh, topic of archaeology? Well, there's always excavations going on, and so things are going to continue to be found. It, to me, it seems like once a year there's something fairly significant that's discovered connecting to biblical archaeology so if you're kind of thinking uh maybe they found everything or they're never going to find evidence for this or that i think given enough time we probably will for most things uh there, you know there's a lot of work being done in the time of jesus and surrounding the the era and region of the Gospels. So, I, you know, I expect more to be discovered that connects to Jesus and the Gospels. And there's also a lot of research uh, being done now, more so than, than at some periods in the past, on, on times like the Exodus, the Conquest, the Judges. And, you know, there's been this constant battle about the, the kingdom of David and Solomon for a while now. But they're, they're, they're coming up with a lot of interesting finds there, uh, more, more cities and towns and architecture that seem to be connected to this kingdom of David and Solomon. So, yeah, I, I expect some really interesting discoveries and, and evaluations and assessments to continue to come out over the next few years. That's exciting. Maybe we can, uh, maybe we can schedule another time to talk about some old testament stuff and some of the other work and some of the old testament discoveries that'd be a fun uh conversation to have uh, and why we can have confidence in those things as well but again my guest today has been dr titus kennedy uh, the book is excavating the evidence for jesus i hope that this has maybe whet your appetite to kind of dig into the text dig into uh, the historical record, dig into the Gospels, investigate and explore Jesus. Because again, this is not just some allegorical, spiritual, uh, wishful thinking kind of thing. It's rooted in history and it's rooted in reality. So there'll be links to that. Um, but uh, Dr. Kennedy, where can we find out more about you and what your uh, work you're working on or things like that? I just say be on the lookout for new articles and books. So I've actually got another book that will be coming out 
in several months that focuses on archaeological sites of the biblical world, you know, all, all around the different biblical worlds. So from Mesopotamia to Greece to Egypt, not just the Holy Land. And uh, I'm always continuing to do new excavation projects and and research and writing. So trying to to help reveal some more of the mysterious ancient past and biblical world for us. Yeah, well, that's awesome. We'll keep doing it. We'll keep tracking you and we'll definitely have to have you back on. And so, and again, if you're listening to this, uh, just go to impact360.org. You can find out more resources there. Um, If you want to find out how you can help give your kids a biblical worldview, whether that's through our summer experiences, uh, Propel and Immersion, or our Impact 360 Fellows, um, our Impact 360 Residency for grad students, and our three initiative for students who are in our Fellows Program for the three years after that walk with them during the college years to understand what they believe and go deeper in these topics of faith and worldview and history and ethics and leadership and all that stuff. We want to come alongside you. So check out um, all of we have to offer at impact360.org. And I hope you'll pick up a copy of Dr. Titus Kennedy's book, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus. So again, uh, Dr. Kennedy, thanks for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.